previously on Rediscovering SB 1070. In April 2010, Arizona enacted the Support Our Law Enforcement and Safe Neighborhoods Act, better known as SB 1070. The state law required police officers to ask about the legal status of anyone they thought might be in the country illegally. From the start, critics slammed the legislation for codifying racial profiling by the police. But immigration reform was on the national agenda, and in Arizona, it was becoming clearer than ever there was strong public support for a crackdown. The public support for Prop 200, combined with the outpouring of legal, financial, and moral support for Hobb, demonstrated one thing, the public's overwhelming support to curb illegal immigration, and politicians took notice. What's going on is, is at base an economic migration. There are jobs in the United States and uh, there are people who can't make money in Mexico or Central America who are willing to uh, cross to get those jobs. And one of the failures of our national immigration policy is uh, we never cracked down on employers after 1986, uh, which was the last major immigration bill uh, for hiring illegal immigrants. Here in Arizona, they think they can survive without, without Mexican labor. And, and somehow, they started blaming everything that was happening in the economy on, on us. That night, I cried and cried and cried, wishing that it was a dream, wishing that, you know, I was going to wake up the next day and my parents were going to be laying next to me. Um, just wishing that, you know, it was just a nightmare that I couldn't wake up from and that the next day I was going to, you know, wake up from it. My name is Catherine Figueroa. I'm 20 years old. Mr. President, I need you to help me, my family and my parents. I want them back with me again. So most people here in Arizona who might recognize your face or recognize your name they um, remember you as the little girl who watched her parents get arrested on TV. And I don't want Sheriff Jorapayo getting my other people and my parents again. What was that like? As a nine-year-old, I didn't understand much. And I got really sad because I never thought this would happen to my parents. <laughs> I never thought this day, I never knew it was going to happen. Um, my parents had had a conversation with me about their status. Um, and since everything started happening with Arpaio, they started telling me, you know, um, we're undocumented. As a nine-year-old, it was just like, oh, no, that's never going to happen to us. You know, it's never going to happen to my family. They're good people. Um, this only happens to bad people. Catherine Figueroa was nine years old in 2009 when she watched sheriff's deputies arrest her parents for being undocumented. Up until then, she said her parents had been living ordinary lives, just like the thousands of other undocumented migrants who put down roots in Arizona. She saw the arrests, not in person, but on TV. She was at her aunt's house, it was a Saturday. 
Her parents were at their jobs at Lindstrom Family Auto Wash in East Phoenix. That's when Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio's officers raided the business and arrested undocumented workers. I was really confused, and then images started saying, like, live news, you know, of a raid happening in Phoenix. And I saw when they were handcuffing my dad. And that was the hardest thing I had ever had to experience, watching my dad get arrested on camera. I couldn't believe it. All I did was scream for my aunt, scream for my grandma. And I started crying and I couldn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. And that's when my aunt said, it's happening, you know, like they they caught him. This moment ingrained in Catherine's conscious, even a decade later, was part of Maricopa County's escalating actions against undocumented migrants. Raids like this helped give a sense of an immigrant invasion and fueled support in Arizona for a more comprehensive purge of undocumented immigrants. The raids left the Latino community feeling isolated and under siege. A year after Catherine's parents were arrested, the state of Arizona passed a law to pick up the hardline approach used in Maricopa County. That law was known as Senate Bill 1070. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. And I'm Ron Hansen. This is part two of Rediscovering SB 1070. In this episode, we'll look at the lives of Arizona's immigrant community, the ones directly impacted by Senate Bill 1070, the state's 2010 immigration enforcement law. As we said in the first episode, Arizona's migrant population grew steadily in the late 90s and early 2000s. To understand why, we need to look at the economic factors at the time, especially two major events. First, in 1993, President Bill Clinton signed the North American Free Trade Act, or NAFTA. I believe we have made a decision now that will permit us to create an economic order in the world that will promote more growth, more equality, better preservation of the environment, and a greater possibility of world peace. The goal was to benefit all three countries involved in the deal, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. However, many Americans saw this as pushing jobs out of the United States. Soon after it went into effect, many manufacturing jobs vanished often from Rust Belt states such as Michigan and Ohio. But Americans weren't the only ones with critiques of NAFTA. Mexicans also lost out in the trade deal. Over the years, NAFTA and the subsidized American corn that went with it had put an estimated 2 million Mexican farmers out of business. Others who survived have struggled to compete. Food prices in Mexico went up while wages, after adjusting for inflation, declined. Not surprisingly, many Mexicans headed north in search of a better life. It was either silly or purposeful ignorance on on the part of Democrats, but, but particularly the Clinton administration, if they thought that somehow NAFTA was going to resolve economic issues in Mexico. 
and that Latin America, Central America in particular, was somehow going to reap the benefit of that. It was, uh, it, it was, it was absolutely foolish. That's Alfredo Gutierrez, a former Democratic lawmaker who served in various leadership positions at the state capitol. He's also been an advocate for Arizona's immigrant community for decades. He said NAFTA was just another thing that destabilized governments in Mexico and Central America. Sending military arms, sending, uh, propping up dictatorships that were extraordinarily corrupt in Honduras and Salvador uh, were patent and obvious mistakes. But most of America didn't care as long as they were there and they weren't here. But it was clear that they weren't going to stay there for long in that kind of repression and that kind of abject poverty. And it was clear where they were going to go. They weren't getting on boats and going to Europe. I mean, this is a foreseeable crisis. This is, a, this is where uh, public policy, elected officials, uh, made purposeful decisions based on other, either extreme stupidity or willful ignorance. NAFTA wasn't the only reason immigrants trekked to the U.S. Unemployment in Mexico spiked in the mid-1990s, brought on by a peso currency crisis. Here's Arizona Republic immigration reporter Daniel Gonzalez. But then in the late, um, mid-1990s, late 1990s, there started to be this really huge phenomenon taking place where the economy in Mexico had collapsed and the economy in the United States was really starting to, to boom. And there were surplus workers in Mexico and a, and a um, um, need for workers in the United States because of the, the, the economy was doing so well. I mean, at the time, in the late 1990s, the U.S. was experiencing one of the biggest economic booms in its history. Another factor pushing up illegal immigration in Arizona was a new strategy by the U.S. government. Beginning in the 1990s, federal authorities sharply increased the number of Border Patrol agents operating in California, especially in the San Diego area. That area also got a border fence that helped make illegal crossings more difficult. The government put more border agents and fencing in Texas, too. The unintended consequence, experts say, is many immigrants adjusted. Undocumented immigrants poured through Arizona by the hundreds of thousands instead. At the time, nobody thought Arizona could become a crossing point for immigrants because it was so desolate. However, if the government thought the harsh desert landscape would keep people out, they badly misjudged. The economic and social pull of the U.S. and the bleak economy and political turmoil in Mexico and Central America lured people north. Hundreds of thousands of immigrants crossed illegally through Arizona's borderlands. The numbers were staggering, and the consequences were sometimes deadly. So a person is likely to become dehydrated within a matter of uh, hours and severely dehydrated within a day and, and possibly they could actually perish due to, to the severe uh, dehydration that people experience out here. To recap quickly, NAFTA and the financial crisis in Mexico created hardships in some parts of Mexico, and with stronger border measures in place in California and Texas, many immigrants started taking the more hazardous path through Arizona. 
This also meant that drug smugglers and human smugglers started traveling through Arizona as well. Stories of gun battles and drug busts tied to cartels also frequently led the news. Daniel wrote extensively about the many high-profile violent episodes that involved smuggling operations, drug running, murders, and more. He recounted one particularly violent moment. One group of smugglers had kidnapped a load of immigrants at the border. The group that lost that um, load um, called their their associates up in Phoenix and and you know kind of ordered these gunmen down to intercept the uh, the other group that had kidnapped um, the load of immigrants and they intercepted them in broad daylight on the highway in I ten and these vehicles pulled up alongside these other vehicles and opened up these sliding doors and with assault weapons just opened fire on these uh, vehicles that had um, kidnapped their load and they killed a bunch of people and wounded a bunch of people. That incident made people aware of the growing violence tied to criminal organizations vying for the lucrative human smuggling trade. Another time, in 2001, a large group of immigrants were abandoned by their smugglers. Fourteen immigrants ended up dying in the excessive heat that day. It was the deadliest single day for migrants in the history of the border. For a period, almost every night it seemed, local newscasts highlighted the discovery of new drop houses. These are essentially halfway houses where human smugglers stash people until they are relocated. Almost on a daily basis, um, the police were coming across these drop houses in regular neighborhoods all over the city, including neighborhoods that you wouldn't think you would find these drop houses in affluent neighborhoods, even in, I remember, in North Phoenix and Scottsdale. Smugglers were renting houses, and they would hold a couple hundred immigrants there for days, sometimes even at gunpoint. The houses had no furniture in them, and sometimes only had a single toilet. A neighbor would call it in, and um, you know the police would flood in, and ice would flood in, and you'd see this footage on the news of all these immigrants being, you know, filed out of these uh, houses in these horrendous conditions, um, and that was almost a daily um, factor. I remember at one point they estimated there was a thousand of these drops houses um, existing at a time. Despite the risky and potentially lethal journey migrants took, many successfully crossed into Arizona. They started to settle in the valley. They got jobs that paid wages they could never find in Mexico, at least not legally. Many brought their families. By the 2000s, the families took root in neighborhoods dominated by Mexican emigres. Fitting in was relatively easy. For Tony Valdovinos and his family, they fit in as best they could. His father worked as a general contractor. From the time Tony was strong enough to haul heavy construction equipment, that's what he did when he wasn't in school. Working alongside his father, knocking down walls, jackhammering concrete, and digging dirt for new pipes. And we learned work ethic, uh, and we would work every day after high school. So for me, it wasn't going off to hang out with friends. It was the dreaded seeing my dad's pickup truck and we were off, you know, everything my dad done that day, we went to go clean up so that my dad could leave the sites um, cleaned. I mean, we grew up 
building some of the most expensive homes. However, he didn't see himself following in his dad's footsteps. He had other dreams. I remember pledging to the flag every single day since kindergarten. You know, you stand up and you pledge allegiance to the flag. He grew up patriotic to the only country he knew. The 9-11 terrorist attacks changed something inside of him. That patriotism burned deeper into him. And after that, he dreamed of wearing a uniform and defending his country. I was 17 years old, was about to graduate from Camelback High School. I was a recruiter at school, an officer. Uh, it was the first time I had ever met a Marine, um, in particular an officer. So he went over and talked to him in hopes he could fulfill his dream. That's when he found out the truth about himself. In the process of signing up, something bounced. Talked to my parents, got really tough. I found out. What he found was he was also undocumented. There wasn't any hope for him to join the U.S. Marines, he recalled. After that, Tony spent a couple of years in community college, working toward an associate's degree. But a voter-approved ballot initiative, known as Proposition 300, made it impossible to finish. That 2006 law forbids in-state tuition rates to students who cannot prove they are legal residents. I found out fairly quickly every single obstacle that was in my way, including um, the most sacred you know, of opportunities, which is an education, um, was extremely more expensive for me. Um, and uh, I had to pay for it with what I was making uh, during, during construction. It was, it was, um, it was painful. It was painful to not be able to go to college. It was painful to not be able to afford a car. It was painful to um, literally not have the ability to do anything in your life other than hide. It wasn't until afterwards that he deciphered the signs that had been right in front of him his whole life. As a kid, his mom wouldn't let him go on field trips for school. His family never visited his grandparents in Mexico. In fact, the family never really left Arizona at all. Now, he's one of the 24,000 so-called dreamers in Arizona who are protected by President Barack Obama's executive action that shields them from being deported. Nationally, there are 650,000 dreamers with that status. His parents are some of the estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. And as of 2008, more than half a million lived in Arizona. As many others, the Valdivinos family settled into Arizona in hopes for a better life. That changed over time as bills restricting immigrants surfaced. That included Arizona's employer sanctions law, which we talked about in the last episode. Remember, that's the legislation that was signed in 2007. It was put in place by Democratic Governor Janet Napolitano and the Republican-controlled state legislature. House Bill 2779, signed by the governor in July, punishes employers who knowingly hire unauthorized workers. The law essentially forced employers in the state to use a federal online system called E-Verify to check whether new employees were authorized to work. Business owners who knowingly hired undocumented workers could lose their license to operate. 
State lawmaker Russell Pierce said the law had broad popularity. And they always accused me of picking on Mexicans and not the people bringing them here and hiring them. And I said, first of all, it has nothing to do with the race. Secondly, you're absolutely right. I said, you know, t- you know, the employers are breaking the law. We need to go after them. The feds don't seem to be doing much. We just turn a blind eye. It was part of a series of laws intended to make the immigrants too fearful and too uncomfortable to stay in Arizona. So much so, they would self-deport, meaning they would move to other states or return to their countries of origin. The laws touched nearly every aspect of immigrants' lives. An English-only law from 2000 banned bilingual education. A 2004 initiative law known as Proposition 200 required voters to prove citizenship at the polls for state elections. A law in 2006 made undocumented immigrants ineligible to pay lower in-state college tuition. That last law was the most devastating one for Tony because it ended up increasing the amount of money he had to pay for community college. I went from paying $300 to being asked to pay $900 because my representative um, wasn't supportive of immigrants. And we were the targets. We were paying for school and we got cut out. We got priced out. Apart from the legalistic debates at the state house, there was rising public hostility toward undocumented immigrants in neighborhoods across the state. Day laborers often gathered before dawn and throughout the day in store parking lots and neighborhoods, waiting to be picked up for cut rate work, often off the books. Fights erupted over the workers who became a persistent physical reminder of illegal immigration. One militia group started watching them in parking lots, noting their comings and goings. Here's Salvador Reza, a longtime activist who helped organize workers back then and continues to advocate for immigrants today. They were the most vulnerable part of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the immigration or the migrant population because they were visible, they were poor, uh, they were in the corners, and they gave a sense of invasion. The new laws gave law enforcement more power to ensure businesses didn't hire undocumented immigrants. In Maricopa County, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and County Attorney Andrew Thomas enthusiastically pressed ahead with raiding businesses, looking for undocumented laborers. Reza remembers watching how they did that. And basically, you know, they had they had cars, they had everything else. At one point, they, they even had horses and and all kinds of, 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 of things were going on. But the main thing that, 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 was, that was happening there was to create fear in the community. And it got to the point where they were going to where they lived and then threatening the owners that if they did not uh, get rid of them, that they would uh, bring the law, uh, you know, the housing laws on them. And basically, uh, uh, it's going to cost them a lot of money. Soon after, Arpaio's deputies began raiding work sites in search of people presumably connected to human smuggling. The raids opened a new chapter in the long story of Joe Arpaio, a stern-looking man with a big personality who embraced his reputation as America's toughest sheriff. The Massachusetts native spent four years in the Army. He worked as a police officer in Las Vegas and worked in the federal government's Drug Enforcement Administration for 25 years. As part of that job, Arpaio worked for the U.S. in Argentina, Turkey, 
and Mexico. After retiring from the government and briefly trying his hand as a travel agent, Arpaio ran for sheriff of Arizona's most populous county in 1992. He won and soon adopted unconventional practices, from outfitting prisoners in pink underwear to opening Tent City, an auxiliary jail in the desert. Arpaio wears a pistol-shaped tie tack and is quick to invoke his Italian roots in his many dealings with the media. Before the Patrick Hobb case, the one involving the army reservists who held undocumented immigrants at gunpoint, Arpaio had largely downplayed undocumented immigrants as a law enforcement priority. He defended the role migrants played in the community. But after seeing the public support for Hobb, Arpaio focused on illegal immigration. The issue became an obsession. I just want to send a message out that if you violate the law, you're here illegally, you're going to jail. Now they're flooding the Mexican consulate, everybody's leaving. If they want to blame me for it, hey, it's working, right? Over the years, the sheriff's office conducted more than 80 raids and arrested more than 700 people. While Arpaio and Thomas saw them as a tool, not everyone in law enforcement appreciated their tactics. George Gascon was the police chief of Mesa from 2006 to 2009. He went toe-to-toe with Arpaio over what he deemed the politicization of undocumented migrants. From a law enforcement standpoint, he said, the raids and the overall tone from Arpaio and the state lawmakers discouraged migrants to report crimes. Gascon, who went on to serve as the district attorney of San Francisco and is now running for L.A. County D.A., was one of the few in law enforcement to speak out against Arpaio's actions. It only made things worse, he recalled. Uh, Arizona became the epicenter, and it also became sort of the, the lead xenophobics around the country, right? So you had all these anti-immigrant groups from around the country that were looking at Arpaio as a leader, right? And he enjoyed that, and the more that he got the, those accolades, the worse that it got. People who had ordinary workaday lives began pleading guilty to felony charges after weeks behind bars. Arpaio's agency flooded federal immigration officials with cases for deportation. With convictions on their records, there was little chance they could return to the U.S. legally. Arpaio stands by the raids today, noting that it's a crime to use fake documents to get work. What people don't understand on those raids, if you want to call them that, uh, is the fact that 95% have fake government document. While Arizona ramped up its efforts to deal with illegal immigration, in Washington, Congress remained unable to break the stalemate over what to do to overhaul the nation's immigration system. The flurry of action and varying proposals to take more drastic steps left the migrant community looking for allies. Alfredo Gutierrez is a former Democratic state lawmaker from the small Arizona mining town of Miami. In the 1970s, his colleagues elected him to serve as the state Senate majority leader. He remained in leadership positions until the mid-1980s. After politics, he returned to his roots, community activism. Gutierrez hosted a Spanish-language radio talk show on Radio Campesina. The show was called Aquí Estamos con Alfredo Gutierrez, which translates to Here We Are with Alfredo Gutierrez. 
For hours every day, he dispensed advice to immigrant workers and their children on how to navigate the crackdowns and how to find family members who disappeared in the desert during their trek over the border. Gutierrez was their therapist, their advisor. I personally felt outrage almost every time I was on radio. Every time I heard a story, I could tell you stories uh, that I was told. Mothers uh, looking for their children, a father who found the daughter. He, he launched a search for her and found her in, a, in, a, in, a, in an arroyo in a creek in southeastern Arizona, buried under, uh, under dirt. He found her. And he was able to recognize her. But he spent uh, um, months searching for his daughter because he had been told she had died there. I'd say stories of families that just were torn apart. Gutierrez considers himself tough and strong. But over time, it started to break his spirit. Uh, but I'll tell you, there were days I walked out of there in tears just hearing the stories. The Arpaio-Thomas raids fomented years of anti-immigrant legislation and what Gutierrez deemed hatred toward immigrants. He said Democrats, including Governor Janet Napolitano, didn't do enough to stand up against them. They profess throughout this not to hate us. They profess throughout this to be our friends. They profess throughout this to be our allies and stand with us. And they nonetheless took these actions or allowed these actions to occur. Uh, without, uh, without much of a battle, without much of a fight. To Gutierrez, it was as if they were left out on their own. The raids upended the lives not only of those who were arrested, they impacted people who only faintly understood what was happening. Like nine-year-old Catherine, her parents are from Mexico City. They crossed the border on tourist visas in the mid-1990s, but overstayed them. Catherine was born in the U.S., the experience scarred her. Arpaio vaguely remembers the case, too. I don't remember, there's so many of them, but I remember seeing her on TV. Nice, nice girl. So she made an issue, or someone used her to make the issue. Did that, did her story stick with you in any way? No, in the sense. Uh, in the sense. As I said, taking the parents out and the kids are crying. So I lived, I lived through all that anyway. So when I hear this, I feel sorry for everybody, not just because they're Hispanic. Although Arpaio may not remember Catherine directly, her separation from her parents while they were locked inside the sheriff's jails is something she'll never forget. And that was definitely one of the hardest days of my life. Um, you know, having to grow up from one minute to another, making decisions for myself, for my parents. Um, and that day is a day that I will never forget. I, it's like it just happened yesterday. Next time on Rediscovering. SB 1070. Armed with a powerful position on the Appropriations Committee, a Republican supermajority, and public support, Pierce went to work. He started drafting SB 1070. 
Supporters of 1070 carried signs and wore buttons in honor of Krentz as they lobbied the legislature. Krentz's slain affected the 1070 debate in a way no facts, figures, or political ideology could. Although Krentz's murder pushed many on the right to support SB 1070, that support wasn't unanimous throughout the state. Protesters gathered outside of the state capitol complex just west of downtown Phoenix. Some of them crowded into the lobby of the eighth floor of the governor's office. It's a racist law. It's causing discord in Arizona. We need your help. And at the time, I think I felt that I was on the right side of history. I think I was on the right side of history. And I do not regret um, uh, doing what I did. It had to be done. This podcast was edited and produced by Katie O'Connell, Maritza Dominguez, and Taylor Seeley. Reporting by Yvonne Winget Sanchez, Daniel Gonzalez, and myself, Ron Hansen. Script supervision came from Katie O'Connell, Daniel Gonzalez, and our director for storytelling and innovation, John Adams. Greg Burton is our executive editor. Social media for this podcast came from Danielle Woodward, Grace Palmieri, Garrett Mitchell, Angel Mendoza, and Claire Rafford. Web production by John Paul McDonald. Audio in this episode comes from C-SPAN, Dennis Gilman, the Clinton Library, and Arizona PBS. Thanks so much for listening to Rediscovering SB 1070, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com.